The scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them, Parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I've titled this morning's message, The Family of God. I believe that this passage holds up for us how our families ought to behave, but maybe more importantly, um, this passage holds up God's definition of family. For some here, thinking about your family brings up great memories of a loving father who uh, disciplined you well with grace and mercy, a mom that was full of wisdom and modesty and modeled godly submission. And your siblings were like friends who encouraged you, prayed with you, pointed you to the scriptures. And for others, uh, when you think of family, it brings up memories of, of pain, brokenness, division, and maybe even abuse. And yet for others, it's a mix of these two ends of the spectrum, and it's, it's my prayer this morning <clears throat> that through this passage in Mark, we would understand just what it means to be a part of God's family. So pray with me. Father, because of sin, our biological families are broken in various ways. The curse has infiltrated in so many ways into our biological relationships. But what this text holds up for us is not just a hope of a united and God-glorifying family in the household of God, but that there is hope in what Christ has done on the cross and through his ministry of the Holy Spirit yet today. Certainly for biological families and unity and redemption, reconciliation where it needs to happen, but more so 
that we are united as brothers and sisters in Christ even more tightly than blood. Uh, Be with us in this text as we unpack it. May we hear from you this morning about this parable and this teaching and about what it means to be a family of God. Bless our time now in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin by providing some comments, uh, just general comments about the gospel of Mark as a whole uh, that I believe impact how, we're, how we should read the gospel of Mark. Um, and this will ultimately help us interpret our passage before us uh, today. The first theme or literary uh, pattern or device, whatever you'd like to call it, that we notice in this gospel is the reoccurring phrase, and immediately. <laughs> this phrase has occurred 11 times in Mark, uh, leading up to our, our passage here just in chapter 3, and then Mark goes on to use it yet another 24 times in his gospel. Uh, one commentator describes the effect of this phrase in Mark as a way to forcefully propel the narrative forward. When we read through the Gospel of Mark, we should feel this intentional, deliberate, and sovereign authority of God and Christ over history. And I've come to think of this phrase as history's obedience to the will of God. If I might make one more comment about this reoccurring phrase in Mark, the last time this phrase, and immediately, is used in Mark, is when Jesus is delivered over to Pilate to be crucified. It's, it's as if Mark was on this literary march in his gospel to get to the cross. Now, this might be the first time I found a theme in the grammar, and if you know me, I am no friend of grammar, <laughs> truly. But I found this theme in the grammar to be very convicting. I asked myself for preparing for this sermon and meditating on this passage in the book of Mark as a whole, is this how my life looks? Am I desiring in all of my relationships to get to the cross? Am I working with intention to bring the cross, uh, the cross to bear in all aspects of my life and those that God has put in my life? Do I, like Mark, make the narrative of my life about the death and resurrection of Christ. And as much as I believe Mark's use of immediately pushes us to the high point of Jesus' ministry, which was the death and resurrection, we also see in Mark's gospel a great concern in Jesus' ministry of who is heralding this message, this good news of Jesus. We see in several places throughout Mark that Jesus is silencing different witnesses to his ministry and teachings. As Mark uses immediately to propel this narrative forward until we get to the cross, Jesus is also ensuring that only those who have a right understanding of his full ministry, which includes his death and resurrection, will herald the good news of Jesus. So Jesus and Mark are guarding the gospel in efforts to ensure that the cross and resurrection are central to the gospel. The second literary attribute that we should be aware of when reading the gospel of Mark is what we call Markin sandwiches. What this means is that 13 times in this gospel, 
Mark sandwiches a teaching in between one narrative event. So just like with a sandwich, there's meat or substance in the middle, and then in between the two slices of bread, this, this substance or this meat is held. And I bring this literary tool of Mark um, to mind or to light because you should be looking for these when you read through, gospel, uh, through the Gospel of Mark. But we're going to be unpacking one of uh, the first sandwich, if you will, in Mark's Gospel. So each of these sandwiches has three sections. So in our passage, if you want a little outline of how we're going to structure this, this sermon, in our passage, the first section includes verses 20 through 21. The second section, or what appears to be a break in the narrative concerning his family, goes from verses 22 through 30. And then the closing section to this passage is found in verses uh, 31 through then the end of the passage, 35. Will you notice quickly, you will notice quickly that the first and third section of this passage are linked with the mention of Jesus's biological family and their response to Jesus's ministry. But we must not miss what Mark is doing by inserting in the middle of this narrative an event or discussion between Jesus and the scribes. It is, it's in the event, in the middle of the section, that we're supposed to read in a way that brings to light the first and third section. And even more precisely with our text, we're supposed to read verses 20, uh, 22 through 30 in a way that helps us interpret Jesus' interaction with his biological family. So now that we're a little bit more set with how to approach Mark and the gospel as a whole in our text, um, we can get into this passage. But let's, let's first engage here with each of the characters uh, in this sandwich. Right away in verse 20, we're introduced to a gathering crowd and Jesus' biological family. Then in verse 22, we see the scribes come into the scene. Then we have the mention of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, mentioned in verse 22, who is also identified as Satan in this text. And then we move down to verse 27, and a strong man enters the scene, and then a plunderer or a stronger man. It is then in verse 29 that the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And then finally, we are, uh, we are introduced to this family unit, again, of Jesus' mother and siblings in verse 32. So I see nine characters in this sandwich, which we'll be coming back to in our application. But remember, we must be asking, how do verses 22 through 30 help us interpret the narrative about Jesus' family? I believe the question that this passage is seeking to answer for the reader is, who do you believe Jesus to be? Notice first that Jesus is going home. He's been surrounded by crowds already in chapter 3. He's just named his apostles in the preceding passage, and he's headed home. It seemed from the context that Jesus is headed home at least to eat. But based on the language, rest was needed due to the physical draining nature of the crowds. So Jesus is coming home at least to eat and receive some physical nourishment to sustain him in his ministry. Interesting, interestingly, in this narrative, it is not Jesus that is most concerned about his physical well-being. 
It's his biological family. In fact, they believe Jesus is out of his mind. Now, the Greek word here is translated amazed elsewhere in the ESV. But I believe what is trying to be communicated is Jesus' family's response, whatever Jesus was doing, however they were perceiving it, this was astonishing, this was amazing, such that they felt the need to seize him. Now, this word for seize, I know Seth has actually talked about this word before, I think even in Sunday school, but this word for seize is not a soft word, <laughs> but one of to take control or arrest Jesus. You're starting to get with that language, Jesus' family's intention once they get their hands on him. In this opening scene, Jesus is home. The crowds are gathering again to the point that Jesus and his disciples could not even eat. And at this point, we, we don't really know what Jesus thinks about the crowds, impeding him from eating. <laughs> I know how I would feel. <laughs> but how do we know? So we don't really know how Jesus is feeling, but we do know his family is physically concerned with Jesus such that they feel they need to go and pull Jesus from the home and the crowds for his own good. But then Mark hits the pause button on this scene and turns our attention to a discussion the scribes were having with Jesus, most likely in the house. If we think about this like a movie, this was the first scene. It's revealing the bigger, bigger context of Jesus' ministry and journey, his physical needs, the enduring crowds, uh, presence of the crowds, and then the coming rebuke that we're expecting before we get this pause button of his family, that he's out of his mind and his lack of care for, for himself is concerning to his family. The second scene takes us into the house, where we get to hear what's going on in the house. We get to hear Jesus' teaching. We get to hear what the crowds were pressed in so tightly in the home to hear. And the topic that Jesus begins to engage with, the scribes on, is by what source of power Jesus was casting out demons. We can see Jesus focuses in on what the scribes are saying because Jesus called the scribes to him and gave them a parable. Of all the things being asked of Jesus or said to Jesus in that house, Jesus focuses in on by what power he casts out demons. As is a habit of Jesus, he begins with a question for his adversaries. How can Satan cast out Satan? And before we hear an answer from the scribes, Jesus begins to logically explain how their conclusion about the power by which he is casting out demons cannot stand. In fact, we do not hear from the scribes again in this passage. Jesus, after questioning their logic, he goes further into debunking their logic by sharing with them a parable. This parable is about, about a divided house. What Jesus is doing with this parable is playing out their logic to some degree. Jesus says, okay, so I cast out demons by the power of Satan, you say. So then how can Satan cast out Satan? And in fact, Jesus continues the logic to say that if this is the case, then Satan's house cannot stand but is coming to an end because it is divided. What Jesus is communicating in this parable is that the scribe's logic cannot stand. 
if Satan is casting out Satan, this house cannot stand and is coming to an end. In other words, Jesus is implicitly saying, why would Satan want to cast out Satan? Satan would be doing, undoing Satan's work. This doesn't flow. Let me unpack this. Let me further unpack this. Since Jesus is casting out, uh, since Jesus is casting out demons, which he did back in chapter 1, Satan's presence is real and his power is experienced by those that are held under his control. Jesus is making it clear he is of a different house. He is casting out demons under a different authority. He belongs to a different house. And even more clearly, it is not just that he belongs to a different house or has a different authority, but that the demons must respond to Jesus' authority. This passage or this parable goes on to show that the house that Jesus belongs to is invading plundering and stronger than the house of Satan. Let me just linger here for a minute. Jesus' concluding argument against the scribes' claim is glorious news for the Christian. Let me read verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And remember the scribe's charge against Jesus, that he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. They're saying that Jesus himself is demon-possessed, and that by the power of Satan, he's casting out demons. In Jesus' response, he does not just debunk their logic, but he explains through a parable what really is happening when he is casting out demons. Jesus is telling the scribes at least three things with this parable. First, Jesus is of a different house. He's not united to Satan. Jesus has no fellowship with Satan. Second, Jesus' kingdom and house is not divided, but it is, in fact, stronger than the household of Satan. And third, Jesus' house has invaded Satan's house. He is the stronger man that tied up the strong man and is plundering his house. So believer, do you believe these truths as you are fighting sin, which is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Do you believe that Jesus' kingdom is distinguished by its unity and that it is stronger than the household of Satan? Do you believe that Jesus has plundered you by his death and resurrection from the strong man Satan and taken you from his house? When you are fighting sin, do you hold on to these truths that Jesus has plundered you from the house of darkness and brought you into a kingdom of light? Do you cling to, to the hope that there is nothing that can separate you from the strong man, Jesus Christ? Sin and Satan have no power over you. He has been bound. We are free from the power of sin to serve Christ. The second section of this passage closes with a teaching 
from Jesus that might be one of the most serious things Jesus ever says as it relates to forgiveness. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whoever blasphemes and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. These verses are describing what has been called the unpardonable sin. This type of definitive statement is, is certainly hard to wrestle with. This sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is grounds for eternal damnation. This is serious. Now, the best way to understand any text is the context, and more importantly, any pointers in the text that can help us clarify or bring clarity to the saying, any saying. So notice in verse 30, we're given guidance in how to understand this sin. Verse 30 says, For they were saying... He has an unclean spirit. The for, or the ground in this verse, is giving us a reason for Jesus' teaching on the unpardonable sin. We should understand that this unpardonable sin is related to the heralding of the idea, he has an unclean spirit. So what I take this unpardonable sin to be attributing to Satan, sorry, let me say, that, let me say it differently, what I take this unpardonable sin to be is attributing to Satan what is of God. To say it more clearly, calling what is holy profane. The they, <laughs> in verse 30, I believe to be referring to the scribes. The scribes were attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. They were calling what was the Holy Spirit's work in casting out demons the work of an unclean spirit. The scribes were actively rejecting the reality of the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' ministry. The scribe's confession was in direct opposition to the Father's confession of who Jesus was. I'm drawing an inference here, but it, it seems given the context, the logic of their argument and Jesus' teaching on the eternal sin, that the scribes knew who Jesus was, but were unwilling to acknowledge this truth, and even more so were propagating a truth they knew not true. Oh, what hatred of Christ these scribes had. And what irony here too. Listen to this. There's irony all over Mark. I didn't have a chance to talk about that at the beginning, but there's irony all over Mark. Look back at chapter 1, verse 34, if you'd like. Mark chapter 1, verse 34 and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Did you hear that? The demons knew who Jesus was. And here in our text, the scribes are suggesting that Jesus is one of the demons. Yet in chapter 1, it is the demons that are overpowered by Jesus. And just as importantly, Jesus' authority over the demons to prevent them from pro proclaiming who he was. The warning here is that someone who actively attributes the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan is committing the unpardonable sin. So be warned. 
I believe this is how we should heed the warning in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. Let me read that. Let me read those verses. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you are here this morning and have actively been rejecting or resisting Christ, hear the words of the Holy Spirit. Do not harden your hearts. Respond to the Holy Spirit and to this call of repentance and forgiveness that there is rest in Christ from sin. And if you're here this morning and asking, have I committed that sin? Let me say this. If you're asking this question in your heart, you are rightly feeling the weight of this offense. You're feeling the fear of eternal separation from God. This is a right feeling, I would argue. That the warning is working as it ought in your heart. Your heart is sensitive to committing such a grievous act against God that it would cost you eternal separation from Him. This warning is meant for you to turn to Christ for who He is and not as the scribes were calling Him to be or saw Him. This brings us to the final section of this passage. Jesus' family makes their trip. They show up, and the crowd was so big that his family had to send for him. It was the crowd that relayed the message to Jesus that they, that they were there and were seeking to extract him from the crowd and remove him from this situation because he was out of his mind. And this won't be the last time that Jesus reminds those around him that their minds are not thinking about him rightly. Just as Peter in chapter 8 will do, Jesus takes Peter aside to rebuke him after Jesus prophesied that he would suffer many things and be rejected by everyone, and then after three days he would rise again. Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not, seeing, or you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In verses 33 through 35, Jesus rebuked his family for the response towards his ministry. They desired to seize Jesus, remove him from the crowds because he was not mindful of his physical needs. Just as Jesus had to rebuke Peter for his wrong thinking about Jesus' ministry and God's ultimate purpose for him. Jesus' family, like Peter, did not have God's will in mind when they were seeking to correct Jesus. Jesus is making some profound statements in these final three verses that we cannot miss. When the crowd reports the news that his family 
has arrived and are calling for him, Jesus asks a question in response to this demand from his family. Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, it's not clear if Jesus' family heard him ask this question, but I can only imagine the silence in the room after Jesus asked this question. What do you mean? They're outside. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. Forever who does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus has turned the tables on his family, the crowds, the scribes, and us, the reader. The question is no longer, who is Jesus' family? But am I a part of God's family? Do I belong to Jesus? Am I related to Jesus? Am I a child of God? The question and the test of our relationship with Jesus and God is our obedience to God's will, not a physical bloodline. Jesus' ultimate allegiance is to obey his Father's will, not the beckoning call of his family. But Jesus' family demanding to call Jesus out from the crowds and not to join the crowds, they're actually positioning themselves in opposition to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is saying in this final section that one's familial relationship to him is not confirmed by biological relationship, but rather through obedience. Jesus' family, not joining the crowds at his feet and being more worried about the things of man, that they are in essence outside of the family. And I think this reality is reinforced in the narrative when Mark makes it clear in verse 32 that his family was outside seeking him. The family's physical distance from Jesus when they were calling for him, I believe, points to the spiritual distance they were from Jesus as his true family. We should also notice some irony between the family's desire to arrest or seize Jesus that in Jesus' parable, it is if Jesus is the one doing the seizing and the binding of the strong man. Now, I don't believe necessarily that this text is communicating Jesus' biological family was not saved. Just as Jesus' rebuke to Peter and calls him Satan for taking him aside and telling him how messiahs were supposed to behave, that was not the decisive word in Peter's life. The point of this text is to reveal those that are truly in the family and household of God. This text holds up two tests for our souls to, uh, to assess if we are part of God's household in Jesus' family. The first is our physical proximity to Christ. Notice when Jesus answers the question, who are my mother and my brothers? He looks around at those who sat in front of him. Jesus is able to physically identify his family members because of their physical proximity to him. You might be asking, how can this still be true for Christians today? I would remind you of passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. 
concerning the church. Now you are the body of Christ and the individual members of it. Gathering with the saints is gathering with Christ. Or Matthew 18.20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus' presence is experienced through the physical body of Christ, which is the church. Regular corporate worship brings us into this physical presence of Christ. And Pastor Seth has been working through his Means of Grace series, and corporate fellowship is one of them. Those that belong to the family, uh, the family of God are identified by their physical relationship to the church. And the second test to assess our relationship to the Father and His Son is our obedience. Jesus said in verse 35, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Obedience to the will of God in your life is the second test for your souls in determining your relationship to Christ. You might be asking, what is the will of God? So that I might know if I'm obeying. In our text, I believe we're shown the most fundamental answer to this question. In our text, we see that sitting at Jesus' feet is what obedience looks like. The crowds were sitting at Jesus' feet. They were being obedient. Just as Mary chose to be at Jesus' feet while Martha was busy preparing and hosting, we ought to look first at our spiritual need for Christ than the physical needs of our body. Notice, Jesus' biological family was more concerned about their physical needs, his physical needs, than being in Jesus' presence. In essence, the crowds were modeling how the family of Christ ought to be behaving. And the first and primary act of obedience that God the Father, or what it looks like to be obedient, is for us to see Christ as his Father sees him. The Father in Mark chapter 1, verse 11 says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Do we affirm with the Father our affection for Jesus? Do we say with the centurion in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, Truly this man was the Son of God. Our opinion, our confession of Christ, is our first act of obedience. To not confess with the Father our love for the Son or with Peter that Jesus is the Christ, or with the centurion that Jesus is the Son of God, we are not obeying God. Our first and primary act of obedience is rightly acknowledging who Christ is and our need to be saved from our sin. The scribes in our text were heralding a message that Jesus was a demon himself, united to the house of Satan. What message are we heralding? Are we heralding our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? I'd like to close with some final applications. Which character in the story are you? Are you like Jesus' biological family? Concerned of the physical things over and against being obedient to Christ? The way that Jesus went about his life with little concern for his physical needs appeared to his family like he was out of his mind. Do we live in such a way that our devotion to Christ looks like madness to those around us? Are you like the scribes? 
The scribes were looking for a way to debunk the person and work of Christ. Are you living in a way that is rejecting that work of God around you? Are you actively rejecting a call to repentance? God's hand of forgiveness is open. Turn to Christ. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an unpardonable sin. Turn to Christ. And if you know someone that is behaving this way, pray. <laughs> pray that they would be humbled. Pray that they would see Christ rightly. And our text teaches that Christ is the stronger man. And he is able to plunder those from Satan's household. Are you like Jesus' true family? Have you arranged your day, week, and year around Christ? Have you made corporate worship a priority? Sitting under the preaching of his word, singing with the saints, fellowshipping with your covenant members, and sharing your gifts. As Seth has already preached on, consider fasting. Jesus' lack of concern for food in this passage, I believe, points us to the grace we can receive when we fast rightly. Jesus himself desires to be with his family. Jesus himself desires to be with his family more than eating. When we choose not to eat in order to spend time in fellowship with Christ, we align ourselves with Christ's priorities. This passage began with Jesus' family saying he was out of his mind. Jesus then chooses to engage the scribes in what seems to be an unrelated topic of demon possession and his ability to exercise demons. What we should notice is the degree in, cha in the charges that Jesus is being charged with. Let me say that again. We should notice the degree of the charge that's being brought against Jesus between his biological family and the scribes. His family believes he's out of his mind, and the scribes believe he, even more dangerously that he's demon-possessed. I hope you're noticing now how Mark is using this parable and teaching about the two houses Two strong men in relationship to the claim that Jesus is um, exercising of demons by the power of Satan. Jesus' teaching through Mark's construction of this sandwich is that the greater charge here is that he is demon-possessed. Mark is desiring to show the reader that if the greater charge doesn't stand, neither does the lesser charge to his nature. The parable shows us that if Jesus is the stronger man plundering the house of Satan, that he cannot be united to Satan. And for that matter, out of his mind and acting inappropriately in his ministry. If the family's plans were to remove him from the house, they would have risked remaining in their bondage. Feel that irony. If the family's plan was to remove him from the home, and they succeeded, they would have risked remaining in their bondage. Jesus' parable on the power by which he casts out demons points to his authority over Satan and his kingdom of darkness. Satan has been bound, and his house is being plundered. Jesus' family wanted to remove him from the house, but what they needed to see is that they needed to be in the house with the crowd and with Jesus. 
God's family gathers at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus' biological family was on the outside calling him out. But they should have been seeing their need to be in the house with Christ. And it is those in his presence that he points to as family. Let's pray. Father, we could not release ourselves from the house of darkness, from the power of sin and Satan. We could not release ourselves. We needed a stronger man. We needed someone to bind up Satan and give us new hearts. Father, help us to live in this reality that through your death and resurrection, your coming this Advent season, even as a baby, you were the stronger man. Satan could not foil your plan, but in fact, you are foiling his. You are plundering his house. You are calling men and women to yourself. And those that rightly confess that Jesus is Lord are those that you call to be your family. Help us to walk in obedience. Help us to live by the Spirit in a way that we don't get our energy from food, but from doing the will of God. Bless the remaining time here as we worship over, worship together with the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.